Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Well, of course, every idea sounds stupid if you describe what it is. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the intellectual dark web are constantly comparing themselves to classical liberals. Were classical liberals always such fucking drama queens? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, we don't know who was a drama queen in history because we just don't have enough like social media information about those people. Right. But like maybe they were. <laughs> yeah, you could see John Stuart Mill on Twitter ju- just having a conniption every time some, like, uh, I don't know, Oberlin I, I, student. <laughs> like, railed against sushi. <laughs> Remember when, like, when, when calling sushi cultural appropriation was, like, the number one biggest problem in the, in the nation? Like. <laughs> yeah. Those were the days. <laughs> But there are kind of, they really do. If you just go onto their Twitter feeds, and I've definitely muted a lot of them and don't really follow others, but it really seems like the end of the world. Like it it is a different world from that picture. Okay, Uh, let's let's take a step back here and talk about like what is going on. You've gotten in these Twitter fights. Uh, yes, you you are somebody who is held up as a possible candidate for membership in the intellectual dark web amongst some in some mouths. I think that's and, uh, uh, that's over. <laughs> and yeah, you seem to have had a real real falling out with with uh, your, all of your favorite people. So. First of all, obviously they were never my favorite people, except I, you know, uh, my stepmother, who I still love, and um, and Sam Harris, who, let's be honest, where would we be without Sam Harris? But um, so we we recorded an, a segment earlier, like uh, a couple of weeks ago, before we recorded the main segment, which is uh, two articles by. Amiya Srinivasan on anger, the aptness of anger, the appropriateness of anger. And we'll be talking about that in the second segment. That's something we already recorded. At the same time, we recorded when I, in more of the heat of the moment, our reactions to That's right. um, the way the intellectual dark web, those people were responding to the protests. And... We were both, I think, pretty 
infuriated by it, you were cursing out most I of was them. cursing so you might you might hear some allusions to this anger that I was <laughs> expressing in the in the second segment we decided to re-record because I was I was really upset I was angry like I was I was very angry as we were both you know quite emotional and quite sort of um uh, I don't know it was an emotional moment where it still is damn near the whole world was coming together to express dissatisfaction over the way things have gone and at least from my perspective, all I saw was people talking about looting being wrong. And so even in that in that first. Right. That was like all they were allowed to tweet about was looting and how bad looting was and why is nobody paying any attention to the looting, which really wasn't like a big percentage of the of the protests. I would say right. it was they were relatively peaceful. Right. And and that's right. Overwhelmingly. It was like they got guidelines. They were issued guidelines, what they could talk about. And, and the sort of hypocrisy of CNN and other kind of center left outlets about like mask wearing. They were like, how come nobody cares that all these people are gathering together? Right. But this was the only one and only thing I wanted to get out there in this segment, Tamler, was me saying, then let you go off on the intellectual dark web, was me saying, okay, like looting is bad, riots are bad. It, well, riots. So, yeah. so like now, yeah. Like believe me. Like I, the, look, a world without violence is better than a world with violence. But I just want to get that aside because I think that that focusing on that aspect of what was going on was a pretty fucking disingenuous response. So if you need me to say that we shouldn't destroy property before you let me say that I believe that that black people have been systematically fucked by the police, then fine, pretty please, with a fucking cherry on top. Writing is bad. Let's focus on, like, black lives mattering. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even with you on that. Like, I think yeah, that... I don't, the, I'm the, just the, doing the, it. That, like, this shit hasn't changed. And so, of course, of course people are going to react with fury. Of course they're going to yeah. get a little violent. Of course they might destroy some property. But at the time that we recorded, like, it had been largely, the vast majority of the protests were peaceful and it actually seemed like it was working. It was reaching yeah. people. Like some police departments were seriously considering yeah. way more than their unions usually allow them to reform. Like there's actually yeah. stuff going on. The fucking NFL uh, it was like, yeah, we were wrong about kneeling. Sorry about that. The NASCAR taking down Confederate, like there, there's yeah. just a lot, like the, the protests, yeah. they were like extending to small towns in like Nebraska yeah. and Oklahoma and, and rural Texas. People who never would have had the phrase Black Lives Matter in their mouth before. Right. Sort of having a moment, a, a coming to Christ sort of, you know, moment where they, they realize that the things that, you know, the complacency that they've had or they didn't fully realize the problem or never acknowledged it. And like, yeah, it, it pisses me off for this reason. We can, this, this leads directly to a discussion of people who, who consider themselves whatever the fucking IDW is under the guise of just reasonableness and rationality um, to point out the nuances of death statistics um, and point to articles, which I've, I've, I dove into the literature. We, we certainly not the time and place to talk about it right now. We could do it at some other point, but to like start quoting statistics about the proportionality of like, 
you know, in black encounters with the police as sort of evidence for there not being discrimination or there being only whatever, some 300 killings of people in the last year and those numbers being too low to say that there's a problem. That to me is ignoring wide swaths of the problem that we've discussed on this podcast before, issues about policing, issues about criminality in the criminal justice system, all sorts of issues that point to real firm I think, clear evidence of discrimination against black people in this country. And just bad policing, whether it's discrimination or not. Like just really bad policing, like police departments that are out of control and that don't have any accountability. Yeah, yeah. Look, the, like there can obviously be discussions had about any particular set of data about whether they show, for instance, there's an interesting conversation to be had about whether or not police violence against violence against black people should be attributable to individual prejudice on the part of the police officer or whether it's something that's just captured in the numbers of policies that unfairly police certain areas and certain crimes right like that's a, that's an interesting conversation to be had and and I, you know i the data can speak to that but to be saying that now to me is no, it it moves beyond the facts and it moves t- it shows me that there's a particular sentiment, a particular defensiveness that is trying to be maintained, and I don't get it. And I don't get why all of the fucking people who claim to be so free speech all of a sudden are coming out against protests, all of a sudden are coming out telling us statistics about COVID transmission. And why is it that most of the time people who are defending free speech are defending it against, like, attacks on people who say racist shit or sexist shit? Like, I— like. I, I don't get it. It's to me, it's disappointment, and it shows something about the, the underlying beliefs of some people that that I guess I knew was there, but that I don't like. Like yeah. when you're the to the right to like the authoritarian right of NASCAR and the NFL and Roger Goodell, <laughs> like that's a yeah. bad sign. This isn't sushi. This isn't sushi eating. This is literally people who are are living such different lives that. You don't know. You don't understand. You don't know anything about getting harassed, getting fined to death. Whole towns are being were being funded by like the police going out and issuing bullshit citations. Um, yeah. It was like, and really, all they're concerned about is like someone broke into a fucking Target. But mm-hmm. honestly, it, like it, this is like three weeks ago. They've they're not concerned about looting anymore. There's like breakdown of civilization that's happening right now. Let me just read you a few tweets. I made myself do this just to get myself a little fired up since, you know, I don't have that same fervor that we had last time. (laughs) This is Brett Weinstein. These are not the seeds of revolution germinating in our streets. This is the energy of revolution captured by a counter-revolutionary movement, and it is threatening every value and principle that binds us together. It is the American revolution that is being opposed. Like, I'm telling you, they have lost their mind. That was my initial tweet that got me into, like, Twitter. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your initial tweet because you— Wait, can can I just read you a few more of these? So, Jeff Miller, while you're being distracted by riots— Activists are trying to censor and fire every professor who disagrees with PC orthodoxy. Every professor. Activists are trying to censor and fire, like, all of us, right? You're going to get so much more shit from the rational people right now. Dozens of professors suddenly face fine. I don't care. (laughs) Fuck all of you. I don't respect you. Dozens of professors (laughs) suddenly face cancellation this week. This is the purge. This is the Zerg rush. 
which I, a reference I don't get. We need your support or academia fails. This is what I mean by drama queen, by the way. Eric Weinstein, um, and we'll get to him again. The crime of dri- driving while black has become thinking while white. Oh, my God. Uh, and then <laughs> Claire Lehman, your girl. I am getting inundated with messages from young people, students and young academics who are scared of the mob at their universities and feel despair for their futures. Absolute despair. Like, they're such fucking crybabies. It's unreal. Uh, and here was the here was the tweet that I initially responded to. I also responded to Claire Lehman's tweet, like, "Oh, look, now we're coddling them." Uh, <laughs> we can tell the story. <laughs> Eric Weinstein, people calling for the abolition of police. The very same folks will ask, "Where are the damn police?" When we have a white supremacist active shooter in our church targeting black people. Do you get what the intellectual dark web was now? Do you get what Evergreen State was now? And that's what set me off. It was you are comparing these historic protests, uh, which are actually bringing about positive change, to some bullshit, like, hyped-up incident at some tiny little college that nobody had ever heard of with, like, spoiled rich kids yelling at Brett. Like, it's fucking unreal that that's how that they react to this, as this this is some vindication of the intellectual dark web because some, like, New York and D.C. media drama, which is honestly their whole fucking world. Uh, it's not the, even that. They have, like, a weird, like, a uh, desire to be outsiders and rebels and, like, you know, the, in, in um, a degree of just, like, uh, of inflating their importance in these cultural dialogues, but it's a very odd, a, a very odd way of carrying oneself. Like s- making making what is essentially thousands upon thousands of people telling you that their life has been uh, poorly, like badly affected by some serious problems in our criminal justice and police systems, and you saying that it's just like your brother got kicked out of Evergreen for saying, like, whatever the fuck it was. It's, it's, an, in, it's an insane—I'm not saying that he is a narcissist, but it's a narcissistic claim. Like, it's a—people will tell us, well, what about when they come for you? I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't— Then I'll I, deal I, with that. When they come for me, I, I would rather get canceled, lose my job, all of it, than be what these people are. To not be able to step back, comparing all this to like the fucking gulag or like 1984, which my stepmother. Uh, why is why I don't, I'm genuinely curious because like I am obviously all for contrarian takes and I'm all for protecting freedom of speech. The question isn't whether or not like I or you or we are opposed to freedom of speech. The question is why it is that usually the people who are being held up as champions of free speech are people who are saying things that are, you know, like either justifiably or non-justifiably offensive to black people and women. Like it's usually race and IQ shit. I, if, if you want to get up there and say like mitochondria is not the powerhouse of the cell and be controversial that way, no one's going to stop you. The acad- like academia is a bastion of free ideas. It's just these people who are saying shit, you know, maybe black people are dumber in not so many words, who get in trouble, then hop on this IDW like I am, I am like being oppressed. You know, t- black people weren't oppressed. You know who's oppressed? I'm oppressed. <laughs> And it's the irony is like too obvious to even point out, but they 
are victims. They're, they are professional victims. They need to think constantly that the world is against them in just the same way that they always accuse, you know, uh, women or black people or trans people of doing. That is, the they are going by the playbook of you know, exactly the people that they target. And it's not that the thing, it's not that the thing that they target doesn't exist, because it does. There has yeah. have been some annoying things that have gone on. I, I'm but not in favor of canceling people. I mean, I just like, I don't know if I have to say that, but I'm not. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that that's not the big story here. And it's the only story. Um, yeah. when it comes to how they're reacting to what is honestly like at this point anyway, seems like this could be like a really positive moment, something yeah. where shit actually gets done. And to the extent that maybe I agree with them, although they don't frame it like this again, like nar narcissism is almost too generous a word for how they're <laughs> responding to this. But I do think like keep your eye on the ball and the eye on the ball is police reform. I yeah. think every time you do something that has nothing to do with that and that becomes the big story, you know, like, it's a stupid example, but, like, pulling Gone with the Wind or <laughs> you were pissed about this, the Always Sunny where one of them <laughs> always sunny. dressed in blackface. The, uh, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, that, that, that stuff is, like, that's just a distraction from getting actual stuff done in, in what is a really, really hard problem of how to reform a massive policing system which has really strong unions in place that make it very difficult to improve the policy. Uh, yeah. They don't give an inch. To actually address that, that's where the energy needs to go, not in, like, scanning old television shows to see if... Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, believe me, like, I, I... There is a policing of language that annoys the shit out of me. Um, and this has come like I've had these conversations with people who are my fellow Latinos about the use of Latin X as a as a term, which I think is kind of dumb. I mean, I get the sentiment, but I don't like it. I'm I am annoyed by a lot of tone policing. But there is to me, it's a separate issue. And one of the things that I don't understand is um the tendency to attribute things like, say, these protests and Black Lives Matter or a, a focus on injustice in the criminal system and uh, discrimination against uh, black men and women in this country, to lump that in with this postmodern tone policing crisis. Like the people who are out on the streets are working class people who've actually suffered at the hands of these. These are people who don't know what Marxist or neo-Marxist is. They don't think that way. That's this is not. It's not the same cultural force that's shaping your. You know the the annoying sophomore white undergrad from telling you that you can't use the word whatever black or you have to capitalize it or whatever. That's different than people who are in the streets right now. That's a different thing. Like it's not. It's so dismissive and it's so unfair to refer to all of this movement as yet another instance of, of whatever, you know, James Lindsay conceptual penis concerns, you know? And, and so here's the, the other thing that they were obsessing over is this defund the police, abolish police. And here's where the yeah. real hypocrisy comes in. Now, number one, when I was responding to the Weinstein tweet that 
entered me into this right. dark. We almost lost you. World. I that that was part of the tweet. It wasn't the part that I was angry about. The anger was like like that he was claiming this was like evergreen state and a yeah. vindication of the intellectual dark web. That was entirely missed. Everybody thought yeah. what you were talking about about abolish police. And then to be fair, I then said, look, when you actually Google uh, abolish police, there's you find a lot of articles and you find what the, or, or defund the police. You find what people mean by that. By and large, they don't mean like overnight change to policy. There are all of a sudden no police, and it's and you know like everyone just has is on the honor system. Uh, <laughs> they have very concrete policy reforms, and a lot of them are really important and really worth taking seriously. That opened the door to this world of like IDW like cultists, just this, in, in, including like Clara Lehman, who like tweeted me a fucking screenshot of a New York Times column that said, yes, we do literally mean abolish the police. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, first of all, if you actually read the column, and if you read any of the articles, even the ones who are taking this uh, more literally than most, they see it as a long-term <laughs> ideal. But, right. um, but, 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 but it, it, okay. why Here's, do they, uh, why is that such a problem for them? Why is it a problem that people are calling for defunding the police, abolishing police? Again, like you said, isn't that what they're all about? Like free speech? And yet they, they think it's the end of the world that people are trying to cut down, mitigate the power of a literal police, not just like language police, not police in the metaphorical sense, but actual police who can like brutalize you, throw you in jail, kill you. What, um, what, why is that so offensive to them? And, you know, like the answers to that question range from just stupid to like seriously troubling. Like, where are they coming from? Really? Okay, here is what, what bugs me, because I think that, that if what you want is, if you were getting together with somebody and saying, what would be the best slogan to have, um, should we say abolish the police or defund the police, I get why somebody might want to use a different term. But the responses from the sorts of people who were tweeting to you and in other, uh, many other cases, right, this is not just about us, obviously, it was... How can you not know that using that phrase is going to misguide people and it's not going to actually achieve the goals that you want them to achieve? So fine. Do we agree that those are the goals, though? That Like, you clearly know. You clearly know what I mean to communicate by saying abolish the police. And because the criticism that you're giving me is that other people might misunderstand what I really mean. But now you're acting like the very target of like misunderstanding you're acting as if you're you're just pretending that you don't understand right. what i'm trying to say yeah and telling me no pick a more effective slogan people are going to misunderstand you well you didn't you just also are they experts in like how to bring about radical change or radical reform like what slogans to use how did everyone become an expert? Maybe that is a good slogan. Maybe that will bring about like significant reform in a way that a more just all this like more moderate sounding stuff. Well, it'll just be the same thing like after Ferguson, yeah. after Eric Garner, like, you know, like nothing actually changes. Yeah. Like so maybe it is good to go out with like a crazy sounding slogan and then have. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I just I, would I, love I would love some acknowledgement for some of these key figures to say. No, you know what? You're right. There needs to be rapid police, like rampant police reform This that's been so corrupt for so long. And that's the story. Yeah. Now let's talk about like how, how to go about doing that. Part of that conversation is that you genuinely want to convince me that that's a bad slogan for our public 
you know, ad campaign, then fine. But until until you at least acknowledge that that um, I, either just tell me straight up, you think the police are fine the way they are. It's never me, been about the police for them. No, it's always it's about these like progressives and trying to catch them like e- overreaching or yeah. publicly shaming somebody that they shouldn't publicly shame. It's never been the issue for them. And, and that's I, the saddest thing. That's the thing that I that's get, alternate disappointment or anger. Like, um, yeah, I, I, I do want to say this. If, if you've listened until now, then thank you. But, um, our Reddit for subreddit had actually like a really good discussion about some of this stuff. It was a civil discussion and, and it was nice to have listeners who respectfully disagree and can actually have a conversation about it. At least a conversation about the thing that is important. Right. Like, is there police bias? That's an important conversation to have, because I think that it goes to what should we do about it? If if the answer is yes, what should we do about it? If the, if the answer is no, then what the fuck has been going on? Like what like what what is the issue? If yeah. every police officer would just read white fragility. <laughs> We've talked about getting either McWhorter or Coleman Hughes, p- people I respect, people who have well thought out views of this stuff, like who might disagree with us. Like I'm totally for that conversation. This is not a, this is not a kind of podcast where I'm going to be tone policing anybody who disagrees with me. Yeah. I guess the thing that I learned in my Twitter darkness, which thank God, I thank God for the freedom software that, that, <laughs> that I just like banned myself from Twitter for like 28 hours. Freedom needs to sponsor us. Yeah. Freedom. Uh, we love you. And this is free. <laughs> this is this is uh, free advertising for Freedom Software. I was at the beach and like getting agitated by all these people. One thing that I have learned though is that Twitter is not the real world, and so it's probably good for us to ignore it every once in a while. It's it's so good to ignore it because then it goes <laughs> away. It's not like anybody yeah. has an attention span <laughs> when it comes to this shit. So you just get yourself off it for like twenty four hours or forty eight hours, and it's over. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to go wear my COVID mask indoors and and uh, read uh, neo-Marxist post-modern uh, I'm going uh, to tone police somebody for <laughs> not capitalizing brown. And <laughs> when we come back, now, it was a little more, I don't know, after our last angrier segment, uh, this was yeah. a little maybe more of a better lead-in, but we will be talking about... The Aptness and Appropriateness of Anger is Emotion, two articles by Amiya Srinivasan, when we come back. This week's episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. I didn't have any experience with it, really, until we uh, started looking over the app. And I got to tell you, man, especially during the time of COVID, this has been uh, like a wonderful, wonderful app to have. Just to give you a little bit of, of understanding what this is, this is a streaming service that has experts across a whole bunch of domains teaching you through video or through audio. And I, it's really edified my education. I'm like, I'm not even joking right now. I have started a couple of things. Um, one of them is to, to name a name that we just mentioned in the intro segment is a linguistics course by John McWhorter. Uh, he has a, a whole course on language and I, I'm really enjoying that. What about you? Well, I've already talked about how my wife and I, we used to take a lot of road trips. And um, one of the things that we listened to 
back in the day on cassette. These Robert Greenberg courses on classical music, um, and they taught us how to appreciate something that we really didn't understand well enough to appreciate. And, and he has a bunch of courses that I recommend. The other thing that I'm dipping into now, I have these big embarrassing blind spots as, in my life <laughs> as a supposedly educated person. And one of them is is history and especially history once you get past like the third century. So like, for example, the Ottoman Empire, like I've heard the term. <laughs> I know it exists. They're the ones who invented that thing that you put your feet up on. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but I don't really have any idea how big it was, how long it lasted. And uh, so there's a whole course on it that I'm very excited to to get into. And then, you know, for our listeners, there are a couple courses on the great ideas in philosophy and in psychology that'll give you just sort of a baseline for um, understanding some a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. There's so much there to dive into, and it's great because it's curated and you know that you're getting uh, quality shit. And it's not cassette tapes anymore. Like, you can put this <laughs> shit on your TV. We, had a, we now have it on our Roku TV. There is so much to learn about the world, and you can start by signing up for The Great Courses Plus. And guess what? They're offering our listeners an entire month for free. But to start your free month trial, you must sign up today using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash wizards. An entire month, Tambler. You know what that means? It means that coronavirus will totally be done by the time you're you're done with your free trial, right? Yeah, if it's not done already. Once again, that's the Great Courses Plus P L U S dot com slash Wizards. Thank you to the Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we love to thank our listeners for getting in touch with us, for reaching out to us in all the different ways that you do. It's been especially encouraging, I would say, over this last few weeks um, because we've had some good, productive discussion, emails. Um, also, I have to say... The branding community in response to our last <laughs> oh episode, God. ripping the, um, you know, ripping this one example of branding, but holy shit, they are the coolest group of, I never thought I would say this. They are the coolest group of people. They have the best sense of humor about themselves and we have gotten nothing but great feedback from the branding community about our last opening segment, making fun of branding. So, I mean, I tip my cap to you. We are, I am just going <laughs> to work on our brand from now on because I just want to hang out with you guys. <laughs> Dude, seriously, because 
<laughs> we criticize science a lot, uh, so social science, behavioral science, and I would say like the people who reach out to us are usually like nice people. But the degree of defensiveness that you still kind of get, you just didn't see it in the branding people. Like these are people who seem to be not only willing to take an honest look at what they did, but like join in on like on the problems. And and a few people actually made, yeah, made branding documents for us. Uh, shout out to Olga Pope, who uh, made one of the documents for us, which includes awesome artwork that I think we might we might use for, for some <laughs> merchandise. Um, but yes, thank you to the all the pillars. Them. The <laughs> pillars of the community. At least they don't pretend to be science like we do. Uh, it's great. Um, so, yeah, we appreciate all the stuff that, that you guys have sent to us. Um, yeah, so you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet at us, at verybadwizards, at tamler, at peas. You can follow us on Instagram, like us, and follow us on Facebook. Participate in the conversation there. Join in the conversation on the Reddit, which has been very active lately. Um, and, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, subscribe to us on Spotify. And thanks to all of you, because this has been a, a great last, it always is, but a great last few months to interact with listeners. Yeah. And if you want to support us in more tangible ways, we really, really appreciate it. Um, we we not only appreciate all that moral support, but the people who go out of their way to go support us on Patreon, which you can do by going to verybadwizards.com slash VBW support. And you can see a link there to our Patreon page. We have some cool shit coming up, right? Uh, we, we finally have the results of our big yearly uh, Patreon Semi-yearly. campaign to decide. Semi-yearly. To decide. So do you want to announce the winner of uh, what our listener-selected episode is going to be? Yeah, it wasn't that close. I predicted this, although I didn't predict it would be a landslide like it was. Um, the myth of mental illness and related topics. So that was the uh, that was the big winner over Kierkegaard, over us playing a video game, over us uh, over talking about a story by uh, Lovecraft. Um, but we're going to do a lot of those things anyway. Yeah, as we as we always do. So thank you to everybody, not only for submitting ideas, but to our five dollar and up supporters who actually voted for them. We really appreciate it. We have Dark coming up soon. Yeah. Right? I'm very very soon. And you are like you need to get on it because I will watch it. I will watch season three within the first like few days. So um, yeah, yeah. Unless (laughs) I think I will too. But yeah. (laughs) Uh, So thank you. If you cannot or would do not want to donate to us on Patreon, you can go give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. Again, the link is on our support page there as well. We really appreciate that um, from from you guys. So thank you to everybody, to our listeners. You guys are kind, generous, and obviously the best-looking listeners in all of podcasts. By far, yeah. <laughs> and also, uh, should we make the announcement about... Uh... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So Tamler and I have... So here's one of the things that, that uh, we want to do often, but we don't have either the time or I guess the energy or maybe it doesn't feel right for our audience. And that is to tackle a very large tome, like a, a text. Um, and one of the ones that we've talked about many times is doing the Brothers cameras off. But it wouldn't be good because it would take hours upon hours of discussion because that's a very long book. So we are very happy to announce that we will be 
actually tackling the Brothers Karamazov for a service called Lyceum. We'll have more uh, details about this later, but it is uh, something we're very excited about. We're going to be doing a five-part series on the Brothers Karamazov. We will let you know all about it, where you can find it. And in fact, the very first episode of that series is going to be a regular episode of Very Bad Wizards. So we look forward to talk about great neurotic Russian literature of the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's talk about these these two essays, although I think we're going to focus on one of them more, they're definitely overlapping. They're both by Amiya Srinivasan. She's a really good philosopher. Uh, actually, let me get her f- full title. She is the Shishel Professor of Social and Political Theory at All Souls College, Oxford. Um, she writes for the London Review of Books, the Los Angeles Review of Books, I believe, I teach her critique of effective altruism and Will McCaskill in my intro class. It's really good. She's a really good writer. Um, And the two pieces we're going to talk about, one of them is called The Aptness of Anger, which appeared in the Journal of Political Philosophy. The other is a piece for the nation, which is called Would Politics Be Better Off Without Anger?, um, both of them, but especially the nation piece, is a is, is a review of the Marth- Martha Nussbaum book, uh, Anger and Forgiveness. I would say the the reason I think we were going to focus more on the the journal article is because it's less about Nussbaum's in, in particular and more about just she's making a positive case for the aptness of anger. And I have a lot of sympathy with the case, although not with every detail of the argument. So, um, so yeah, let's talk about it. What did you think of them just as a whole before we go into the details? I liked them. You know, I come from a background in the psychology of emotion. And one of the things that I read early on when I was trying to, you know, graduate school especially was philosophy of emotion. I mean, it's it's obviously timely right now, but she didn't write it right now. I, I So I really liked it. I, I am predisposed to agree with her conclusion before she even goes into her arguments. And in fact, after reading, especially the journal article, um, I just, I have some nitpicks or maybe substantive, substantive um, issues with the way that she gets there. But <laughs> even when I was disagreeing about the way that she gets to this conclusion, I couldn't help but think that the conclusion is the right one. Yeah. And I also think that even when I agreed with her, she made me think about it in a different way like there's more ammunition that i have now in favor of the view that anger is can be justified um and and one of the reasons is and i think this will be true for all, all our listeners it's very accessible and it is tied not to, as you say, like a lot of the technical debates about like cognitivism versus non-cognitivism about the emotions or something like that, but really tied to historical cases and real life issues. And she's, she begins with a debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. This is a couple years after Baldwin, the fire uh, next time, his essay, or I think it's there's a couple different essays in that text, which I read fairly recently. And he begins by saying that 
the South was built by his labor and sweat and the violation of his women and the murder of his children. And no one can challenge that statement. It's a matter of historical record. Essentially, expressing his anger without having any kind of, so this is what should happen or that is what should happen. He is just expressing that his anger at how black people have been treated and specifically African-Americans have been treated in this country since they were brought here. And then quotes William F. Buckley, um, and I'll just read the quote that she gives of his where she, she says, bitter insistence on past injustice would only result in self-destruction. Negroes must avoid the kind of cynicism, the kind of despair, the kind of iconoclasm represented by Baldwin. She's sort of summarizing, but some of that is in quotes. For in the end, Negro anger would be met, Buckley warned, with white violence. If it does finally come to a confrontation, a radical confrontation, this is a quote, then we will fight the issue not only in the Cambridge Union, but we will fight it on the beaches, on the hills, on mountains, and on landing ground. And the way she concludes that, or the way she summarizes Buckley's message here, tolerance might be extended to Negroes, but not to their anger. Fiery prophecy must give way to cool pragmatism. And this is the basis of what Srinivasan calls the counterproductivity critique of of anger, that anger is counterproductive and therefore it must be repressed if you are going to achieve certain goals that you have in the face of injustice or oppression or whatever it is that you are trying to overcome. She then frames this as a more modern version of what what Western philosophers have been saying for a long time, which is that emotions, especially emotions like anger, are the enemies of reason and um, rationality. So she quotes Seneca, who described anger as the most hideous and frenzied of all the emotions. The other emotions have in them some element of peace and calm, while this one is wholly violent and has been has its being in an onrush of resentment raging with the most inhuman lust for weapons, blood and punishment, giving no thought to itself if only it can hurt another, hurling itself upon the very point of dagger and eager for revenge, though it may drag down the Avenger along with it. And I don't know, you know more about the the ancient philosophy than I do, but although I totally buy that anger, that emotions have been sort of positioned as something that, that are in opposition to reason— I don't know that the counterproductivity critique of the people who make that argument are really appealing to that tradition, because I think there is a specific way in which they are pointing to anger and black anger more than other forms of anger um, as being the thing that's counterproductive. Not all emotions and certainly not their own anger in many cases. I agree that they're separate. So I think the, a few things. They're separate critiques. I think the Seneca critique, um, they're overlapping, but I think Seneca's problem with anger wasn't just that it was counterproductive, but what it did to the virtue of the person who experienced anger. I think even if anger was productive in certain cases, he thought it was still uh, would still make you non-virtuous if you were the kind of person that allowed you to yourself to be angry. So I do think that the counterproductivity critique can be distinguished a, from the Seneca view, and also B, from 
the idea that anger is irrational in general, right? Like that anger is, is something that is, you know, in contrast to reason. And I think for the most part, she, she keeps them separate. The, the part about reason and emotion and the blurry line between them, she f- focuses more on at the end of the article and towards the beginning is really focused on addressing the counter productivity critique. I don't know if it's Maybe for people like Buckley, it's more tied to black anger. But I think she gives a lot of examples, like Palestinians uh, are warned against anger against the Israeli uh, occupation. Women are told not to be shrill or strident. And then, yeah, the, the protesters after Ferguson and the police killing there. The way she addresses this is kind of interesting. It isn't to say, actually, this anger is productive, although I think she thinks right. in, in some cases it might be. And she ha- in the Nation article, she suggests that all the people, and usually white people, who are quoting Martin Luther King or, or appealing to Martin Luther King, A, forget that Martin Luther King was pretty hated in his time by a lot of people in spite of his commitment to nonviolence, and B, that that's not all that the civil rights movement was fueled by. There was Malcolm X, there was the Black Panthers, and there were more riots, or at least more violent riots, at the uh, you know in the, the late 60s than there are today. So she notes that, but she's going to set it aside, at least for the uh, purposes of the journal article, and say, look, even if it is counterproductive, anger might still be apt or appropriate. And so anybody who wants to make the counterproductivity critique has to do more than just say anger is counterproductive in this case. They have to say that it is so counterproductive that it actually is inapt or inappropriate under the circumstances. And um, so then she goes through why uh, anger might be apt or appropriate even when it may be counterproductive. Before we get to that, I want to ask you something. Do you think anger in a lot of the cases that she's describing and and in the current time, do you think, do you find it to be counterproductive? I don't think most of it is. So even if you go back to, and she, she makes note of this, like at the Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King debates, one, the anger of Malcolm, the, the Malcolm proponents might have, have been what led people to change just as a sort of threat, you know, in this kind of like, well, well we don't want that. We don't want that. So let's go with, with Martin. But two, I think that there is a, a mistaken assumption by the people who bring out Martin Luther King quotes to think that because he was nonviolent, that he wasn't angry. And I think there's plenty of evidence <laughs> that Martin Luther King was pretty angry and that many of the civil rights uh, leaders and followers of the movement and protests were driven by a frustration and an anger that um, was not central to the way they expressed their protest, but must certainly have been central to their desire to protest. Yeah, their motivation to really put their lives on the line. Right. So I don't think, I mean, I buy that, that it is in fact what is said, like right now, you know, our first, first segment um, as evidence. And in fact, the productivity debate, counterproductivity debate is often more focused on the violence, as you say. 
And it almost like if I have a criticism of the article, we'll, we'll get to this in a bit, is that she's almost willing to concede that that violence is at least inappropriate, if not counterproductive for for moral reasons. So but I think you're right that right now, at least the anger, I, I think a lot of people would concede is productive. And we're certainly talking about this issue in a very different way now where again this is July or sorry June 8th it's almost a hopeful time right now in terms of just how, how setting the IDW aside like it really feels like people are taking this issue seriously from a policy perspective in a way that they weren't before and you can't I, there's no way that that would have happened if it hadn't been for the outpouring of angry protest and maybe at times violent protest I don't know yeah, yeah. There really is something to be said for like the the angry black voices that start the first ones to cry out um, that this is injustice, actually motivating people to listen in a way that they might not have um, had they just mourned, right? Yeah. Just responded with that. So let's look at the argument. So but again, we're setting aside uh, whether it's counterproductive or not, which I think, as she notes, is an empirical question and probably differs from context to context, case to case. Um, she says, look, even if it is counterproductive, that doesn't mean it's inappropriate. And when we talk about this in ordinary life, we always mark this distinction between intrinsic reasons to get angry or instrumental reasons to get angry. And I like her example of the cheating husband who says, you know, if the wife is mad because she, find out, she finds out that he's been cheating on her and he says, well, you shouldn't be angry at me because that'll just make me more likely to cheat on you in the future. She says something like that just gives her an addition, additional reason to be angry. It doesn't give her a reason not to be angry. Uh, or it doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that the anger is inappropriate, even if that's true, right? So, right. You, she's she's introduced this term affective injustice, which I really like. Yeah. Which is, in you know, if you try to silence her anger in that moment, you are this is yet another form of injustice that you're piling on um, to the initial injustices that caused the anger in the first place. Yes, right. So you're compounding it by doing that. So like, and she gives a bunch of examples, like calling an angry black man a thug or a woman uh, str- strident or shrill. You're shifting the conversation then from the intrinsic reasons to be angry to the instrumental concerns, which, as you say, is another kind of injustice. I totally buy that, right? Like, and yeah, I think it's very, and I, it's very kind yeah. of clear that that's true in ordinary life. Yep, yep. And I, you don't, you know, again, this is obviously an argument that is directed at the response um, of of black Americans, but it doesn't have to be. And I think that, that for anybody who is tempted to discard arguments because of the political context here, I think if you just take a moment to think what it's like to be gaslit into not being allowed to be angry, um, because you're told that it's not a prudential response, that would just infuriate you more. And if you like constantly are told (laughs) that you're not allowed to get angry and you keep getting shit on, like, that's just not. No, it is. It's a special kind of psychic, Like (laughs) pain, uh, as I think he says (laughs) at one point, if that's... So, okay, here's where I have a couple disagreements, criticisms, which is she gives an account of what makes anger 
apt. So she's already said anger can be intrinsically appropriate, even if it's not instrumentally, you know, it's not prudent. It's not, intram- uh, it's not instrumentally good. But then there's the question, okay, what, when is it inst- uh, intrinsically appropriate? And I think she gets a little too theoretical here, certainly for my taste. And then I'd say, given my knowledge of some of her other work, I was a little surprised to see this. It's funny. Okay, okay. This is interesting because I see why you feel that because, um, f- like, for instance, she gets to, you know, she says... Which is something I want to ask you, by the way, if you think that it's true that anger, she says, anger, what makes anger intelligible as anger and distinct from mere disappointment is that anger presents its object as involving a moral violation. Yeah. I don't know that anger is always triggered by a moral violation. I agree. But that's... And even a- apt anger. Like... Yeah. Um, even apt anger. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you can very readily admit that something isn't a moral violation, I don't know, getting like your friend being late, right? Like, I don't, I don't know that that's a moral violation. It might be just a a violation of manners, but it can piss you off. I get angry at my dog for peeing where they shouldn't pee, like where he shouldn't pee. And I don't think that's like, I'm very clear in my mind that not only is that not a moral violation, but he is incapable of moral violations as such, right? I don't. Yeah. I was going to say like my example of that is sports. And I think you get angry a lot in sports and you know, when Grady Little left Pedro in, in 2003, an anger that I still to this day have not gotten over. And so we lost to the Yankees in games in game six when we would have gone to the World Series. That was I, I've never you know, I've rarely been as angry viscerally in my whole life. And I will die on the hill of that being appropriate <laughs> anger. Like it's at the center yeah. of my web of belief that that was that that anger was was appropriate. And and I would even say as much as as angry as I still can whip myself up to be if I start like watch it again. It like it it is not a moral violation, right? Like so, right. And it, like the lines might blur, right? You get angry at the call of a ref, like there is a claim of unfairness there, or you get angry, like. But even if they make a mistake, like it's if they made a mistake, it's not a moral violation, right? Like. Right, and you would have to go through hoops to say that it's some sort of systematic error in the, you know, yeah. like purposefully done. That's not why um, you're angry. Or like getting angry. Um, what's it called when you flip the bat? Is it just called uh, yeah. flipping the bat? Yeah, you just flip yeah. the bat. Um, right, like where it's an etiquette it, violation. Uh, yeah. It's an etiquette violation. Like I can see why you feel disrespected and disrespect might be something, uh, but, but I don't think that it has to be. Similarly, she says disappointment is, is, is not for a moral violation, but just a violation of how you wish things were. And that also doesn't seem to me to be right. I think you can be disappointed in a like in people for their moral violations like and i think that often and sad yeah. she didn't she didn't bring up sadness as you know it seems like anger is you know moral violation anger is a response if and only if it's a moral violation i don't think that's the case um i think that that um sadness is often a response to a moral violation and i think it often is when there are people who are close to you that commit a moral violation. You are sad or disappointed, but sometimes not angry. I mean, like, you know, Eliza doesn't commit many moral violations, but if she does, a lot of the time I am disappointed in her, not angry at her. And I honestly, (laughs) 
that's how I feel about my stepmother. Like, I don't feel angry at her as much as I just feel sad about it. Like, I feel really disappointed. Like, I, I kind of, I didn't expect it. And, um, you know, I'm not going to get angry at her. She's a, she's, yeah. uh, she's been very good to me over the whole course of my life in spite of being a wicked stepmother. But I <laughs> am disappointed, you know? Oh. Right. And there's a substantive difference in the kinds of response that would come from those two emotions, right? So in psych of emotion stuff, people often say sadness is a sort of a, a low approach emotion. Like it's something where when you don't have too much control, like you can feel dejected. It's something is an irrevocable loss or somebody has done something that you, that dis, when it disappoints you, but you're not. There's nothing really you can do about it. Um, whereas anger is a, uh, yeah, anger is a, a strong approach emotion that is sort of directed at changing the, the thing that the person has done. Like that your object, the object of your anger is to change or punish. It's a, it's a high control emotion. I remember, I remember not feeling that angry when I was going through um, the, the sort of the, divorce, the the separation that I was going through, um, being sad, 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 sad. And when I felt anger, it was a very different phenomenological feeling, so much so that it, it sometimes people say it's not a negative emotion because phenomenologically it's high control. Like I finally felt like I could do something about it. And so I responded in that way as opposed to the sadness, which was also a result of the same exact situation. Yeah. And I, and I would say even that to me isn't like I was angry about you know, Grady Little, but I couldn't do anything about it. So, and I think disappointment, if you've ever had somebody close to you be disappointed in you, that is as much of a spur for change often if, uh, as, as interestingly, angry. because I think they, because they feel like you sense that they've given up on you and that's like a horrible feeling They're They're like, wow. Or that you really let them down. Um, and I know that, that I know that feeling and it is, it's awful. So it's sort of surprising and maybe it makes me think, is, is this a different kind of anger that she's talking about then? Is it a kind of a, maybe is it something closer to outrage or something, you know, which I know some philosophers think of anger in that way as kind of moral outrage. And if that's, you know, what, what this is, well, then almost by definition, it would be true. But, you know, to the extent that she talks about it as anger, which she does, that this seems to be, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't buy this distinction here between anger and disappointment. I also don't think it's necessary at all for her argument. No, it's not. It's not. So, but the question of how you determine what is apt is sort of central to her claim. And this is where you said, I, I kind of interrupted you in, in you were expressing disappointment <laughs> um, in her getting extra theoretical. And there's a sentence here where she says, since anger presents its object as involving a moral violation, one's anger, that P is apt only if P constitutes a genuine moral violation. I knew at that sentence that you would think she was getting too theoretical. <laughs> but I actually had a kind of an opposite feeling, which was that whether or not something is apt seems so central to this argument that I didn't think that she built that much of a case for when something is apt. Like, I, I wasn't convinced that that she had defended this notion of aptness enough. Well, I think so. 
here's what I, 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 I don't necessarily agree. This is why I don't think it's that important to our argument. I think it's a sufficient, it's just not a necessary condition. If someone has committed a moral violation, or it's, let's see, it is a condition which is likely to make anger apt, right? She, she gives a couple other ones. That and the portionality of yeah. it, right? So if it's, yeah, in response to something that truly is a violation and it's proportional to that, that violation, then it seems apt. And you have the right relational requirement, which we can talk about because, you know, that's another thing we might uh, disagree or not with her. But yeah, like certainly a case where anger is apt is when somebody has committed a moral violation. And so like the, che- the cheating husband, you know, somebody who betrays you. I mean, I, I guess maybe I think that, that, that apt is doing more work here than maybe you think because... Because there are cases where I, you know, feels like, yeah, this is apt and this is not apt, but I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure what apt means other than descriptively thinking it's understandable that you would be angry. I think it's more than that. I think it's normative. Like it's appropriate. It's like, it's normatively appropriate. Right. But so how do you determine whether it is proportional? Uh, for instance, it's, 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 un, it's unclear and I mean, we'll get to this other claim that she makes too when she seems to think that if somebody responded without anger in some cases that it would they'd be missing something yeah it would be missing something even if they took the same actions that one might take to to improve the world but that's what i mean that it's clearly it's it's like a normative claim about the appropriate emotion to have you're missing something if you don't have it under certain conditions. And I think a paradigm case of that is uh, certain times where you are the victim of a moral violation or you have a personal connection to somebody who uh, is the victim of a moral violation or... No, I get, I mean, I, sorry, I get that she's making the normative claim. I just think that it hasn't been fleshed out as to what, like, so she goes into a little bit of like, what about, what about the proximity condition on anger's aptness, right? So do you have to be personally uh, affected by a moral violation. It's unclear to me that, like, I guess you could write a whole paper on what makes something happen. Let me read that passage. So she says, she's instinctively drawn to the thought that black Americans have a special additional reason to be angry when a young black person is gunned down in the street. Here it seems only appropriate for black Americans to cry out. Another one of our children has died, but I am far less inclined to think that middle-class white men have a special additional reason to be angry when another middle-class white man suffers a harm. So what do you think of that? I'm, I mean, my intuition is with her, right? But, but when I flesh out the intuition, there's a good reason for why this, this might be the case. And it's not an easy thing to defend, right? I feel like you have to add you you have to add something rather than just say like it seems apt to me. Um, I think that that if you are to make an argument like this, many people might say, "Well, why? Why is that the case?" And I think that that there are reasons and that they could be flushed out, but that would require uh, maybe a whole article on what makes an apt. You know, on the one hand, I'm saying this isn't fleshed out enough. But on the other hand, the people who flush all of this out would write the kinds of boring articles that we were referring to earlier that wouldn't be as, right? So for now, I'm, I'm happy to say that there is a notion of aptness that we have an intuition about. Um, and we can even say that 
like, let's just use the paradigmatic cases where everybody would seem to have an intuition about it and not these edge cases about like, are you allowed to be angry on behalf of black people, for instance? And I think that's all her argument needs is paradigm cases where the intuition is shared by most people. And this is why I agree that you don't want to get too theoretical about that because it makes it bloodless and too abstract on the one hand, and it will just be impossible to defend. And But I think this is where the essay comes, I think it becomes very insightful here, is in the is in this idea of anger as a form of appreciating injustice. And she compares it to a kind of aesthetic appreciation while noting that they are different and it's just an analogy. But here is where she says the quote that you said, that imagine a person who does everything as it were by the ethical book, blah, blah, um, but who is left entirely cold by injustice, feeling nothing in response to those moral wrongs. I don't want to say that the per- such a person has done anything wrong, but I think it's natural to say that there is something missing in her. And the thing that's missing is that they're not angry about it. And she says in just the same way that, you know, somebody who doesn't appreciate a great work of art, it's not that they've necessarily done anything wrong, but there's something in them that is missing in terms of, uh, you know, you're being confronted with something and there's an appropriate response that they don't have. Yeah, this is this is the part where where I start having a problem because I get what she's saying because in the course of normal human events, the way that you know that somebody has appreciated it, and in fact, the natural, descriptively natural response to somebody really appraising the world in these way, like this way that injustice has occurred, is anger. And when people don't express that, I think it usually does signal that they haven't really appreciated it. I don't think that it's necessary, though, and and to bring us back to what we were saying earlier, like you could respond with sadness or disappointment, and I don't think one could say that you this is evidence that you didn't appreciate it, and and I think that there could be agents who are cog sort of cognitively driven who appraise it and say this is terrible, and uh, they want to do something about it, um, and I think that it would be wrong to say that they didn't appreciate it. I think it would just be that they didn't appreciate it in the way that. I know most people do. Yeah. So I think that's fair. I guess the issue is, you know, where is the burden here? Like, I think maybe Srinivasan, and we did try to have her on, but the timing didn't work out. I think she might agree that there are a certain other range of emotions that a person could feel that might also demonstrate an appreciation of the injustice but like you said, quite often it means the lack of anger means that they that they haven't. I also think that it's where she has the real problem. So somebody like Martha Nussbaum, who both never gets angry, she's just built that way, right? You know, that's just uh, that's just part of her nature. So okay, maybe there's something missing. But if she takes all the right steps and and does the right things and you know, that would be okay. But it's the, in addition, then criticizing the anger in others that I think Srinivasan rightly has a problem with. Absolutely. And I think, I think the only criticism I have here is that, um, she's making the mistake that a philosopher might make, in my opinion, a mistake of, of trying to make what I think is a super reasonable empirical claim, something along the sort of Bob Frank lines that, that emotions signal something so reliably that in the absence of that emotion, you might 
genuinely wonder whether or not somebody felt that thought or like had that thought. But I think that's that's just contingent upon the way that we've been built and not, you know, there's right. something that you, you could you could appreciate something even aesthetically and not have the same same kind of response emotionally that somebody else might have. But it'd be hard to say to somebody who's not built in that way to say that you did not appreciate the injustice. Yeah, I mean, so let's, because I, 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 this is the part I really thought was interesting. So she says, this is, she's imagining a response to her view. Since our hypothetical person acts impeccably without the aid of apt affect, she lacks nothing, and our intuition to the contrary is just an expression of our fetish, the skeptic might say, for emotion. But then she says, notice that a similar argument can be run against the intrinsic value of apt aesthetic responses. And she says, I want to suggest that that skepticism should be rejected as simply that, a skepticism that can be broadly expanded to include anything that we intuit of intrinsic value, including epistemic goods like truth, justification, and knowledge. So I think that's sort of interesting because, you know, in the case of aesthetics, right, if somebody is left cold by a great work of art, I'm willing to say that now they haven't done anything wrong, but it's just that they are built, they are wired in such a way that, say, they can't appreciate straw dogs or, to take one example, or, you know, Brothers Karamazov. Uh, (laughs) but, But, like, I still think there might be missing something, even if, you know, you're not criticizing them as a person you are critic you are saying they don't have the intrinsically appropriate reaction to that thing and so maybe you could run that on somebody who is left cold by injustice it's not that they're doing anything wrong it is that they lack an appropriate response to the injustice in just the same way that somebody who can't appreciate a work of art or like me with like a lot of music like i just I don't get it, you know, like, I'm sorry, like, and I get it, but I will admit that I'm missing something there, you know? But there is, there is, I think what I'm saying is that when you, like, when you say that somebody's left cold by injustice, what you're saying is that very thing that they, they didn't appreciate it. And what I'm saying is that it's not clear to me that you need to have that response in order to say that you appreciated it. And that's why I brought up the other emotions that you might have in response to sadness. I mean, to moral violations. But, but what if you didn't have any emotional response? Like, what if you are like what we think of someone like Peter Singer or somebody like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it would turn on, like, perhaps I'm not able to get into the mindset of somebody who has a cognitive appreciation. So they look at something and they say, no, like, I really am appreciating this work of art. I'm just not like having my, like my eyes aren't watering and my not, you know, I'm not, I just don't respond to the appreciation in the same way that you do, which granted I think is like, it's such a reliable signal that it's hard to tease apart when a human being is just not emotional about something. Like I find it, you know, I've been, I've like, I've, I've been in situations where somebody I'm next to somebody looking at a piece of art and I feel moved and they just are looking for the bathroom and I, I like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, and, and so I think in general, it's a reliable signal. I just think that, you but, know, but a signal this, of what? I, like, I think this is the issue that we're 
It's a, it's a reliable signal of appreciation. It's just not a necessary condition for appreciation. So I think it's empirically in human beings, it is, if I see that you are feeling an emotion, it seems like an honest signal that you feel like it's an injustice. So I know, like I have some, like epistemologically, like that's a good road to to knowing that you really are thinking of it as a violation. But if you don't seem to be angry I feel like I don't, I still don't know. I can't conclude that you're not. So maybe the issue is what does appreciation mean in this context? Yes. Um, and I guess I have a very, like, I'm comfortable with a very cognitive, um, you know, s- definition of what it means to appreciate something. So, so long as you are against it and you are, you have a desire to see it gone and you're motivated in all the, the ways that she says, I think that it wouldn't be fair to say that you, that you didn't respond correctly. But now, would you say that again about art? So what if somebody takes a work of art? This will be a silly example, but it's one that prompts a reliable emotional reaction for uh, from a lot of people. The movie, the Pixar movie Up, right? And especially the first 15 minutes of it that leaves a lot of people kind right. of basket cases. And also for me, actually, the end of it when they go through the little... Uh, photo album and he sees that there are more photos or like Kafka or whatever. If, if somebody says, look, I get that they're hitting all the right boxes here and, you know, this is expertly done and I can see how they are appealing to the right emotions, keeping people entertained, but also moved. I just don't feel any of those things. Again, it's not their fault but I think they're missing something, right? Like, and so then the question is, what's the disanalogy? If you agree with that, what's the disanalogy between that and the the, the anger uh, or any emotion? Well, say, again, or any emotion. Uh, I mean, again, I think it's, conti- I think that it is just a contingent claim. I think human beings often respond that way, but let me give you, so, so what I'm saying is something. But that- I just think like there's no, with the aesthetics, there's no way you can appreciate it if you don't have any uh, kind of a real emotional response to it for some works of art. I guess because, I mean, it does turn on what you mean by appreciation. If you're just big, you're just defining appreciation as having an emotional response, that's, I guess that's what it feels like to me. But let me give you an analogy that's not about missing an emotion, but it's, but it might hit at what I mean by appreciation that's not emotional. So suppose that we're both uh, looking at a film and you being vastly more knowledgeable about you know, the cinephile that you are, we both look at something and I am like in tears because I'm so moved by it. And you're pointing out the masterful technique of lighting that this director used. I don't think it's fair for me to say you're not appreciating it as much as I am. I think that you have an appreciation that is like an intellectual one that is meaningful. That's not dependent on whether you're, you're crying or not right now, because in fact, you might be having a better appreciation than I am. Uh, I guess, though, if that's all I have, if if the only way that I am, you know, responding to it is noting the kind of expert filmmaking or the techniques or the lighting or the colors or the use of sound or something, and I'm not getting, like, just viscerally w- the effect of all those things... I would say there's a way in which I understand, you know, the aesthetic value of the movie better than you, but there also might be a way in which I understand it less or that it's just inaccessible. It's inaccessible to me in the way that it is to you. 
Yeah, I I guess. I don't think it's that unreasonable to think that in some cases, say like watching a movie the eighth time, where you're no longer having the same emotional response that you might expect somebody to have, that you actually, in your gaining of knowledge is making you appreciate even more. And you might actually be not moved in, in that way at all. But I think that you can say, I deeply appreciate it. But that's parasitic of the fact that you used to have the emotions, right? Like, Perhaps, but all I but all I want to say is that you have a novel way, you have now a new way of appreciating it that is not that is not contingent upon the emotional response. Right. I, I would agree with that. I think that's definitely true. So I think then we can say that it might be the case that you can have like suppose is there an analogy there to moral violations? Like so you're so you're so in tune with what it means to be, uh, what it means for an injustice to have occurred, that you don't have that same angry response anymore. Um, what you have now is just like a, just like you know, you're like fucking um, Nash in a beautiful mind. You're just <laughs> like you're having this like mathematical. You see the whole system as it's unfolding before you, and you're like, I, I think it would be fair to say you're having some sort of affective response, but I don't know that not feeling anger is, I don't think it's fair to say that you haven't appreciated the, the moral violation. Well, so I think though, uh, again, I'll just guess what she would say in response to that. But I think the point is, it's not that you have to feel anger every time you think about it, but if you never get angry at, and you never got angry at the injustice, then there is there's something intrinsically valuable that you lack. Now, there may be other things. Like, I think Singer is a great example of this. There's so many other things that he intrinsically has relevant to morality that almost everybody, including me, lack. But there might be, and I don't know if this is true, but there might be something he also intrinsically lacks. That doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that overall, even necessarily, that, like, if you add up the different ways in which uh, we appreciate injustice or, you know, suffering or something like that, that, you know, the ledger is way more on Peter Singer's side than on most people's side, because it probably is. At the same time, like, that doesn't mean that there's something intrinsic that is lacking, something of intrinsic value that is lacking. You know, I think the, the only substantive disagreement we probably have is, because I, I think that if you're looking at human beings I think it's safe to say that if you never had some sort of um, emotional reaction, then then I then you could say that you're not appreciating it because that's just how humans seem to work. I think the only thing we probably disagree about is whether or not a computer could eventually appreciate something, and like and and I want to maintain that like there would be a meaningful way in which a program could be said to appreciate something that doesn't match the way that we do but for all intents and purposes it, I don't think it takes anything away from what she's saying to say that this is just about human beings and I think we would probably both agree you're weird if you didn't respond to an aesthetic beauty affectively to begin with I would be a little suspicious of you you would call like 911 and say there's an African American person <laughs> who's not who's not moved by this Botticelli. <laughs> he is threatening my life. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I also like I want to talk about this analogy with uh, rape victims because I thought this was interesting. And I think her true target is these anger critics, right? And she makes this comparison 
with uh, people who blame rape victims or who give advice to rape victims, that that's their response to a violation. Well, you know, you shouldn't go out late at night. You shouldn't dress a certain way. You shouldn't drink too much. And what I think is so interesting about this discussion is she agrees that that is often empirically good advice, but there's something offensive about it which isn't tied to the fact that it's not good advice, right? Like instrumentally. And it is precisely that lack of appreciation of the injustice. But also she says it treats the counterproductivity of anger as a fixed fact rather than a largely contingent feature of social reality, which is, I think, a little more controversial of a claim. But as far as there is something deeply wrong about that's your reaction. Well, for future times you go out to avoid being sexually assaulted, here's what you ought to do. It may be good advice, but it's also like there's something seriously missing in how you're responding to what happened. Right. And right before, I think she says it so well in the clause right before what you said, which is it moreover obscures the fact that this is a this, this advice is good advice only because men in fact uh, men do in fact rape which you can you know make this analogy to to a, a black man who is driving a fancy car or is out late at night and wearing you know like his hat backwards it's like yeah if i were a black parent i would give like i would school my son in all of the ways to avoid getting brutalized by cops But, and this is exactly, you know, as much as I was arguing the opposite, this is exactly what I think my, my, the heart of my claim in the first segment, which is what kind of person are you if the first thing you point to is that looting is bad? Like, have you not experienced the anger that would say like the reason we are looting, you know, is, is that it is a reaction to this injustice. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing I think that is, was infuriating us about the reaction. I, I, I think I might have a problem, though, with this idea that the counterproductivity critique at least necessarily treats the counterproductivity of anger as a fixed fact rather than a largely contingent feature of social reality. And I think your example of the black parent talking to their child about how to how to act if they're stopped by police, which they probably will be at certain points, sometimes the stakes are high enough that that really is what you need to do. And I don't think the black parent is denying that that this is a contingent feature of social reality. They want it to be another way. It isn't that way. And so when you're talking about giving advice to your kid about how to handle yourself with police. So this is where I think maybe the claim is a little too strong. Like, I think that that parent isn't buying into the system they're just dealing with the unfortunate reality as it is right and you know this is something that that i've heard some black people saying about the responses that they've seen from non-black people of fatigue from this like all this racism where they're like yeah, you're feeling it now, but like we haven't had the luxury of feeling fatigue. But if we did feel this much fatigue every day about the injustice, like it would be, it would not, it would not make for a, a decent life. Like we have to sidestep oftentimes the anger because, or else we'd just be angry all the time, right? And so I've had it, I've had it be the case before where I, uh, you know, I call call a friend and be like, "Can you fucking believe this?" And then be like, "Yeah," you know, like shit. I mean, it happens. Like they're. It's they can't spend all their time as as angry. No, I mean, I think that's right. Is that like I don't want to say it comes from a place of privilege to make (laughs) that claim. 
uh, it can, I, right? It, I it mean, can. It, it can, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. and uh, <laughs> but I guess my claim only is that there are times where that is appropriate, like down the line, right? And it's just a really sad fact. Um, and I think maybe she would agree because she makes a point about why that's so doubly unjust is when you are forced to repress the anger, the justified daily rage. Because she talks about Baldwin, because she says Baldwin was like one of these people, right? Who thought black anger didn't serve the interests of black people and realized that that generated a profound conflict. She says, indeed, Baldwin here is speaking, I want to suggest of two kinds of injustice. First, the daily oppression of being a black person in the U.S., impoverishment, ghettoization, threat of physical attack, political and social marginalization, psychic degradation. These are things that cause a relatively conscious black American to be in a rage almost all the time. The second is what I want to call affective injustice, the injustice of having to negotiate between one, one's apt emotional response to the injustice of one situation and one's desire to better one's situation, a conflict of responsibilities that are all but reconcilable. And I think that that's so, yeah, she recognizes, I think, that there are times where you just have to do that. And that's another form of injustice. You know, there's a, we've talked about this before, I think, but there is also a particular injustice for black men because there might be anger as a response to all sorts of injustice that, that might be forcibly suppressed, but black men have like this double injustice where the expression of their anger is exactly what is threatening to a lot of people. Like, not only are they told that they ought not feel angry that much, but when they do feel angry, they're taken as especially threatening because of the stereotypes of the angry black man, that they're just doubly forced into this, this like, well, shit, it is risky to my life to express anger. Right. Whereas often we can express anger at no, it's not, it's not imprudent for us to express anger, both like internally, psychically, it's not imprudent. It can be a kind of cathartic and, you know, we're not putting ourselves more at risk um, than we would otherwise. And the, yeah, and the risk for women is a little, it may not be life-threatening, but it is also gaslighty, right? Where So then I think the conclusion right now is that Critics of anger, who this is addressed against, right? They have to show that the prudential considerations uh, against, you know, showing anger or feeling anger outweigh other considerations, like intrinsic considerations. I, I, I overall buy that. Also, that there is this additional injustice or in moral insensitivity, which I think is a good word here, of asking people to not be angry because it's counterproductive um, in cases where that anger is totally appropriate. Yeah. And I, I think her, her argument is successful only to show that sometimes anger is apt in these cases where it's not prudential. Even in a few times, I think that it's that it would be enough to defeat this view of anger. As I, 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 I wish she was able to come on because I would like to ask her, there's a, there's a section where she kind of all but concedes that violent anger is always inappropriate for moral reasons. And I wonder if, 
I mean, did you take her to be saying that? I, you know what I took, what I was reading between the lines is that it would be counterproductive to her argument to try to mount an argument for violent anger being uh, apt. I think that I don't think from reading it and from reading both pieces, not knowing her, obviously, it seems to me that I wouldn't be a, I don't think that she would have a problem saying violence might sometimes be an extension of your angry response and might be apt. I think that she's being pragmatic here. So here's what, and I, I kind of maybe agree with you, but she does pretty explicitly say, she says, when violence is wrong, it is presumably wrong, not because of its bad consequences, but rather because it is categorically wrong, a violation of a moral prohibition, perhaps against needless physical harm. Um, when an instance of anger constitutively involves violence, such anger would be all things considered prohibited, not because of its bad consequences, but rather because it involves a violation of a moral prohibition. Thus, a defense of the possibility of anger's aptness need not yield a defense of angry violence. So maybe what she's saying is, I don't need that. I don't need to, the, to also defend angry violence, but maybe that case could be made. But when you're just talking about anger, it's unnecessary. She also somewhat concedes to Nussbaum that revenge is wrong or seems to. And I think maybe the idea is anger doesn't necessarily involve either revenge or violence. And so you have to evaluate it as separate from from those two possible consequences of it. And this is where she goes through and mounts an argument for a mildly functionalist view of emotions, by which she means you could argue, as some have, that the all of the behaviors that come with anger is what constitutes anger. Like the, the things that we might say are a result of anger, like your angry look and your motivation to, to beat someone up or whatever, uh, and perhaps even the behavior that is violent, that that is just what it means to be angry. And she wants to step back and say, no, no, there's a, there's a meaningful way in which like that hard view I don't want to defend because I want to be able to say that people could be angry and not be violent. Right? Yeah, and I agree with that. Yeah. It was funny, though, to me, which where it's like, uh, there is an empirical, <laughs> I suppose there's an empirical answer to whether or not that is right. It struck me as an interesting way to say, well, I don't, <laughs> like, I just want to make this, I want this empirically to be the right way of seeing anger because of the argument that I want to make. I mean, like, I think, like, it really depends on the person. Like, our friends or I remember people in college who, when they got angry, it was going to lead to violence. Like, that's how they were built. And, like, it was almost, like, scary to see how violent their form of angry w anger was. And then otherwise they would be, like, really laid back, almost, like, soft-spoken. And But then they got angry and, like, somebody was going to go to the hospital so I think there are people like that. Then there are people like me who get angry all the time and like very rarely violent, like now pretty much never violent other than to like the the wall or the cupboards or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, like I think that just depends on the person, the culture. 
Yeah, and she says that she says that much, right? Like that it depends on the culture. It's funny, you know, and and I think that this is a, a reason why, like, at some points, uh, especially early on in our relationship, we didn't. It was hard to understand each other because to me, like, anger meant you know, like I know our relationship is in danger here, uh, right? And to you, you're like, no, no, this is like not you know, we just get angry and then we move on. It's an Israeli thing. To, that's a kind of, like, it's a real cultural thing. Like, Israelis uh, get angry constantly. They're constantly yelling at each other. And they're legitimately angry, but it's just, a, and, and then it's over. You know, it's just a way of releasing. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction between that and, like, the say, the Argentinian, the Latin American, who's loud and argumentative. But there's always, like, underlying positive affect, like, expected. Like, the, the, we don't expect that you're angry, that you're, you're just yelling, but you're not angry, angry. You know, maybe that's like it's probably some of the time that it's that it's like that. But a lot of the time, like my mom used to get seriously angry at me, like yelling. And I think in a lot of families that would have meant some irreversible rupture in the relationship. And it was just part of daily life for me, you know. My like right. Whereas my mother has, I've never seen her angry, um, and and I would feel like I would just completely. But my father very okay with being angry, but it often meant that you were about to get a, a spanking. And, uh, <laughs> so we'd run, I would run away. <laughs> and that's why I was afraid of your anger. Violence. I thought you might spank me. <laughs> you know, I only spank you when you beg me. <laughs> <laughs> when you're the opposite of anger. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that, that teasing it apart, I, I I'm fine with that argument as well. Like, um, it doesn't always lead to violence. So I don't need to sit to, to, talk about whether violence is apt because all i want to talk about is anger being apt uh, the one th- last thing i have to say about these two articles we fairly talked about the nation piece but one of the things that she captures in the nation piece is her disappointment with martha nussbaum and her recent work which i feel too not anger but it's disappointing and here is a nice line that captures that she says it's unsurprising that someone who is not experienced firsthand the liberating effects of anger, Nussbaum herself claims not to get angry, might make such a mistake. But the mistake is less understandable in someone like Nussbaum, who has for decades exhorted the moral need to closely read the lived experience of others. And that's very true about Martha Nussbaum. It was like one of the reasons I really like her uh, as a philosopher, although more the early work, is how much she would use literary examples or historical examples to really flesh out the emotional complexity uh, and the moral complexity of what was going on. And so it was a bit of a letdown to see this kind of hardline stance against anger, just a kind of, a, I don't want to say a simplistic form of utilitarianism, although at times it did teeter on that. And first, you might expect it from some people, but I did not expect it from Martha Nussbaum. It's interesting because I don't remember whether it's in The Nation or in the, uh, I don't know if it's which one uh, she says it in, but she talks about Nussbaum being on the spectrum of cognitivist to non-cognitivist about emotion. That, that she's pretty far on the side of cognitivism, which essentially the, a view that emotions are a result of judgments that you make. So it's, they're almost a choice on some, I don't know if for Nussbaum, but I know that Sartre was an extreme on that end. He thought that it was a choice to feel an emotion. And if you have a view that, that is more along the lines of 
do you, are you going to decide to get angry or not decide to get angry? I, I could see why you would be a little more inclined to say, um, you know, it's maybe decide not to get angry. But if you view it as less of a decision and more of a just expression of what it is that you value, then it's hard to call this not, you know, maybe there's some disagreement there, like that leads to such a drastically different view on, on how these emotions should play a role. Yeah, maybe. I think you could still, I mean, I don't know. This is a new thing and we've been talking for too long. I think you could be a cognitivist or a non-cognitivist and have, and that not be tied necessarily at least to your views on anger as appropriateness. Right. I, I kind of hate that debate, so. <laughs> well, on next step, the next episode of Very Bad Wizards, cognitivism. Is it true? <laughs> uh, my grad school friends used to make fun of me that Bob Solomon was my real father because he once uh, dated my mom. <laughs> he was a cognitivist and, you know, he was an exist he's, uh, after Sartre. Uh, you know, this, it gets me angry because... These kinds of debates like cognitivism and non-cognitivism, I love, but you never, you never let me talk about them on the show. Yeah, including now. I feel we're, oppressed. We're like at two and a half hours. Fuck yeah. Let's wrap this up. <laughs> but I, I would, I'd be into it if you, if you, like, I, I, like if, if there's a... A Bob Solomon uh, article actually might, if it's not too close to home. <laughs> Dad. <laughs> I <wanna> read. <laughs> All right. Well... Um, check out these two articles and join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.